Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and I'm felling today because my guest is Melbourne personality, punk rocker, cartoon character, university lecturer, columnist, occasional criminal lawyer, stay-at-home dad, Broadway musical nerd, irrepressible stand-up comedian, and author of the multi-award winning novel, The Book of Dirt. Bram Presser, welcome. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's late now because I can't be up any. So before we start chatting, can I ask you please to open the show by just reading a little bit from the Book of Dirt? Sure. Okay, this is uh, the beginning of part three. Uh, in camps, she carried a small gold ring. She kept it with her for the rest of her life. On a chain around her neck, beneath her blouse, her apron, her hospital gown. After she died, we found it tucked in a jewellery box in a drawer beside her bed. She put it there before we drove her to the hospital for the last time. While we still lived in hope, she had already come to terms with her fate. I held it just once, this witness to her, her ordeal. It was a touchstone of her legend, stories of courage, of strength and devotion. And yet it seemed so insignificant resting there in my hand. I rolled it between my fingers, hoping it would reveal her secrets. So much of what we'd come to believe seemed impossible, but... As one survivor told me, survival itself was impossible. Don't be too quick to, to dismiss the illogical, he said. The fanciful, the absurd. These things happen. Refracted through that simple, perfect circle, I could see another holocaust. Every story is different, the survivor had said. Every one of us endured his own Auschwitz. After her death, we made peace with the silence. We couldn't have known what lay in a shoebox at the back of her sister's apartment in Prague. It took another 16 years before I would sit at a cafe table watching Ludwig unfold these delicate sheets of paper, and then another few months before he sent them to me. Here she was, at last. Dear mother and little sisters, I am happy that you have received my news. I can imagine how terribly worried you must have been, my golden mother. You were right in the ask whether we were well kitted out. I can tell you kitted out we were wonderfully. Unfortunately, it was of no use to us. They took from us absolutely everything, even the clothes we were wearing. However, do not think it is something awful, since there exists much worse things. We were where all transfers from T go, and I'm happy that we are together and that we have escaped with our dear lives. Only very few people manage this. I will only tell you that gas is used there on a very large scale. Do not ask, dearest mother because we will tell you everything when we get home. Now I hope that it will be soon. I thank God that we are all the, all the way we are. Do not worry about Daddy. He's in the same situation as us. I still had news when we were there. We, thank God, are in good health, and Daddy also. When we return, we will have become only factory labourers, but perhaps you will accept us as such. Mummy, please send us lots of warm underwear but old, and three pairs of stockings, thick, but also old. Send only that which I've written for. We have received the parcel in perfect condition. Perhaps you'll be offended if I write to you to send us lots of food, because you are already sending a lot of it. But there is quite a severe shortage here. We are issued soup at midday, in the evening, soup, a piece of bread, and something with it. But everything is so minimal that it is not enough for even half a day. Aside from this, I work hard and all day outside. You must not send food in glass containers, mummy. You cannot, for you imagine how it is. I smuggle everything into the camp under SS watch. I have to be very careful, since I know what it means for one's life to hang on a thread. And believe me, 
I act accordingly. In the parcel, everything was correct, except for the glass jars. Also, thanks to you, everything was wonderful. You'll be able to calculate how many parcels you should send, so that it is enough for three people. You can also include food in parcels for Daddy. If you are, illegible, mummy sending any meat, they're not in, illegible, send no lard at all. Cigarettes the same as last time. Mr B is a very nice person. He also has children and a wife. I hope that one day we'll be able to reciprocate to him. Mummy, please write to us about what the situation is and when we will see each other again. You cannot know how happy I will be if we were all together again. Above all, I wish you good health and to be courageous. Do not, Mummy, worry about Irka. In the first place, I am almost 20 years old. And secondly, after such a rich experience, believe me, I am a fully grown-up person. So hold your head high. Regards and kisses to you, Dasha. And, and you say following that, in it there is everything. And, and it must have been such a, an extraordinary thing to come upon that letter because in it there is so much. Yeah, I mean, look, I, at the time, I wasn't even really considering my grandmother's story. I was searching for my grandfather's story. And uh, that was getting nowhere. And I was in Prague and I was sitting with my mum's cousin, Ludwig, um, who is the son of my grandmother's uh, youngest sister. And he said to me, like, I was telling him, I was having a bit of a whinge about not really getting anywhere with this research project. And he kind of said, uh, look, you know, I, I know you're not really looking for your grandmother's story, but um, you still might be interested in this. And he pulls out from his pocket this envelope, which was kind of full of uh, sheets of really delicate uh, paper. And, you know, with tiny little scribbling on it. And he said, oh, his, his mum had actually just died uh, probably about six or eight months before I was there. And uh, he was cleaning out her house. And he said, I find, found this at the back of the back of the closet. These were letters that your grandmother sent to her mother back in Prague. So my great-grandmother, she was a, a convert. So uh, the Nazis didn't consider her Jewish, so they didn't take her. Um, and so my, I, I, at this point, discovered that my grandmother – had been communicating with my great-grandmother from concentration camps um, throughout uh, the war. And, and, like, I knew that you, that, that, you know, you were able to send small postcards and that sort of thing, but, like, I never I, I never kind of come across full letters and realised that these were smuggled out. I mean, you know, she was talking about in these letters, you know, um, what supplies to send her, um, Mr. B, who is the, you know, the person who's getting the food to her, like, he's kind of a conduit. Uh, it was quite amazing. Like, I, I, it never occurred, I'd never given thought to what it must have been like for my great-grandmother, you know, sitting in her apartment in Prague with her two younger daughters, um, while literally, you know, her family had literally been torn in two. The other half, her husband and uh, and two eldest daughters, were going through the concentration camps, and she managed to stay in touch with them and to get them supplies. And I suddenly realised this is this is a huge story in and of itself. I thought that my grandmother would really only enter the story at the point at which she met my grandfather, but they, I realised she, and, and particularly my great grandmother, had an extraordinary story of their own. Um, that only just happened to coincide with my grandfather's when they met. Yes, it's, uh, as you put it so beautifully, so poetically, 
Um, and, and these moments seem to happen throughout, but this um, refracted through that simple perfect, perfect circle, I could see another helicopter. Um, it, it, you know, it, I guess you see where you look in some way, there are all these stories, but those letters with their kind of false cheerfulness and forced cheerfulness, I guess, not false really. You know, well, I, I, it's funny, because I really, I, I've actually thought about that a lot. I, I Because my grandmother, um, as I knew her, uh, like you know, she was uh, she had quite serious depression and she was on medication for it and all that, which you know was a a, uh, a result of the trauma that, that she'd suffered. But like, assuming she had a similar personality to my mum when she was younger, and interestingly, my daughter who is two, um, and mum and mum says that that, that 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 like my daughter reminds her of what she was apparently like as a child. So assuming that this goes down the generations and the women in my family, there is this incredible kind of positivity such that I, I think that my grandmother really was able to not not that she was not, not that she was putting like a positive spin on what was happening, but she was like she had such an incredibly um, just optimistic view and in this in this sense it was the idea that she would survive that she would be reunited with her mother and sisters, um, that she could, you know, get food and 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 other like their medical supplies as well in. Um, I, I think it, it's actually an incredible. Um, it's just an incredible. I don't know. I don't know. Like uh, testament to, to my grandmother's nature, and that she also took it upon herself to try and um, transmit that. To her mom, who she knew must have been suffering uh, back in Prague with the uh, fear that you would when your child is has been taken from you, put in a camp, and you're starting to hear rumours about what's happening in these camps. Um, uh, I, I just think it's amazing that. But I actually think it was. I think it was genuine. Um, I, I really, you know, it might. When, you know, when, when once she'd survived and come back home, and, and she was able to decompress and, and what have you, I think she probably. That's when it all kind of came out, but um, I actually think through the camp, it, like her, her attitude was probably a very uh, significant part of her ability to survive. For sure, yes, I imagine that. But she does transmit a lot of information too about yes. what's happening. I mean, Maybe. certainly the whole wide-scale gassing. I don't know how wide, how well that would have been. Well, I, so so it's interesting. At the time that that, that Ludwig showed me these letters. We thought that that uh, that the gas. We thought that the letters, because of the mention of gas, were from. Um, she actually had sent them from Auschwitz. Um, you know, because I, I know, I know, uh, you know, I have all of her um, uh, transport uh, documentation. Uh, so I know the dates when she was in each camp that she was in. Started in Dresden, started went to Auschwitz, um, ended up in in Mertzdorf in in Germany. Um, so I thought it was. Uh, I thought we thought it was. This letter was sent from Auschwitz, even though she says she's escaped from it, and they used gas. Uh, so it should have been a bit of a giveaway. But um, uh, like the, the letter's actually dated, and uh, the letter was sent, assuming the date was correct, uh, when she was in Mertzel. So I mean, I imagine there would have been this incredible sense of um, relief, and and also a, a belief that your survival. Is actually now possible, if not likely, um, because you're no longer in the place they use gas. You know, um, so. But I mean, 
had these let, had, had any of her letters been intercepted, um, she would have been in, in a terrible situation. And, and and as I you know as happens in the book, one of them actually was, um, but she was just very lucky that the person who was uh, who stepped forward to translate it for the Nazis basically made up a translation as she read it that that, that didn't you know that didn't uh, give away what my grandmother was really writing. Yes. I mean, um, one of the things you say uh, in your reading was after her death, we made peace with the silence. And, and that's in contrast to the fact that you actually found so much information in, in these letters. Um, but yeah. also there is a kind of silence, um, an ongoing silence, I guess, even in spite of all of the research that you tried to do on, on both your grandparents. Um, but do you feel... Firstly, do you, do you feel that you know them now or that you've reconciled the, the people you grew up with who didn't talk about this to the people yeah. that you researched? I actually really do. I, it's interesting. Like I, I, not only do I, do I feel I know them, I feel that I wish that I could sort of share with them what I found because, like, the, Particularly, I think about my grandfather and the fact that, like, you know, he blames himself for his, or blamed until he died. You know, he blamed himself for his mother's death. He, he blamed himself for the death of his friend George. Um, there were lots of things that he blamed himself for that really, from what I have been able to, to, to uncover, like, he really didn't have any. There was absolutely no reason, not, not that logic really enters into these things, but like there was really no reason for him to, to carry that weight through the rest of his life. Um, and I wish I could have, look, he may well have known, but in, you know, in, in a rational sense, he may well have known that it's not really a rational thing, you know, post-trauma. But, you know, I wish I could have just sat down with him and explained to him what, what had really happened essentially um, so that he – he understood that the the things he blamed himself for for were not in in any way um, his fault. Arguably, they were in spite of his best efforts, you know. Um, So, like, and and also just I think it's, uh, look, I probably couldn't have had these conversations until I was quite a bit older as well um, and that he could kind of, they could relate to me as an adult. I I was 19 when they died, so I was kind of, on the cusp, I suppose, but didn't really know anything. But, um, yeah, I think, I think I, I, I really do feel that I know, and also my grandmother particularly, because, because like she, <laughs> my grand, both of them particularly, really, um, my grandmother, who I, I don't know why, like for some reason, my grandfather occupied this place in my childhood where he was kind of the, the superhero of the family having, survived and having I mean I knew she did as well but I don't know for some reason that he he was the kind of he was the I don't know the 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 main survivor for some I don't know why my grandmother never really entered into it in my head maybe it was just I had a really particularly close relationship with him so it was just the way I saw him um but having not really given as much thought to my grandmother's story and having learned what I learned about her and her story is just like, in many ways, I actually think it's a, it's a more interesting story um, in just like in a kind of an objective way. I mean, they're both incredible stories, but hers is, is so different um, I mean, to the stories here. You, you, you know, if you, could, if you could reach back and just thank her for all the literary devices she gave you. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, like both of, both of, both of them actually. Like, yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah, I, I think the story, the story lent itself to to um, I think good, uh, you know, literary uh, I don't know adaptation or um, synthesis or what have you. Uh, it, uh, you know, they they actually lived, uh, you know, in, incredible stories uh, that could be told in interesting ways. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I guess um, to a certain extent, you know, there was the suppression that you have talked about many times, um, that they didn't talk about these things um, and, and that they actively, if not discouraged openly, sort of it was clear that this is not, you know, this yes. is not what yeah, we're talking about. But do you feel that there was a kind of unspoken communication, perhaps something maybe even cellular? Um, that, that filters through, that, you know, you kind of grew up knowing that there was this story that was a key part of who you are. Well, I mean, look, yeah, this is this whole kind of, you know, post-memory move of the, the, the idea that trauma can actually be essentially genetically trans, uh, transmitted. Um, and I think the, the answer is, is, is definitely yes. Like, I, I, you know, I, I knew that there was a story. I knew that um, it was... Uh, you know, quite possibly the key story to understanding them. Um, you know, I, I had a version of each of their stories that we were reasonably uh, satisfied with as being having been their stories. I mean, they were completely wrong, but um, but you know, I think that that, that you, you sort of I don't know, growing up in also like particularly in Melbourne, which has a very um, kind of strong. Uh, in the Melbourne Jewish community, very strong uh, survivor uh, uh, population, and, uh, and and it is very much a strong influence on on kids growing up, particularly of, of my generation. Uh, you know, with the, them being our grandparents, um, but being what kind of one step removed. I mean, it was it probably would have even been a a, a, a more traumatic silence for for, for my mum and her her generation. Um, but for us, it was it was this kind of it, it did have that one step of removal. Um, so I think I think um, yeah, like I think there was just the in in ways that they they lived their lives. My grandmother's attitude, like to food and to shelter, and um, and my grandfather's kind of pretty strange way of attempting to give some sort of Holocaust education without transmitting trauma directly by saying this is me like though i knew he had lived it i'm um, like you know when he made me sit down and watch the entirety of uh landsman's shower uh, documentary uh, and like i i knew that that, that he had had lived that but he rather than make it so personal that that i had to hear the particulars of his experience he just kind of showed me his Here's something to watch that, that you know can can uh, I suppose um, uh, fill the space of of you understanding what I went through without me having to dredge it up uh, in its in, in you know in its particulars um, and and re-traumatize myself. Yeah, but also maybe the traditions too that are kept. 
Um, yeah, well, because, I mean, because this is of the whole race is like you know, there's a whole the Passover itself, you know, yes. recounts the trauma that goes back further than the Holocaust. Yeah, like uh, like the Passover, the uh, Seder, the the, the yes. uh, is is actually sort of a template for the book. Um, there's, you know, there's, there are a lot of allusions to it uh, through the book. Yes, uh, now um, that you say it, I, I wish I had known that before I wrote my re- review so I could be so clever. But yes, now that <laughs> you say it, I can, I can think about, you know, exactly how you've done that. And but I'm, I think it, like at one point it's, it's absolutely uh, 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 like <laughs> I'm not even subtle about it. I, I, I paraphrase Diane that it would have been enough. Um, song from uh, from the Pesach, uh, Pesach Seder um, that is, which was actually my grandmother's favorite song because in English, like her, you know, her name was Dasha or Dagmar, Dagmara rather, and um, in in English uh, she called herself Diane, so she thought Diana was the best song ever, right? Because <laughs> she thought it was about her. Uh, so, like you know, to include it, I mean, no one who didn't know her or hasn't heard it from me would know that there's actually an even more personal connection to that song as it relates to my grandparents. But, um, in the, in the book, um, I thought it was, it was actually a very useful device to kind of ex- explain that. Like I, you know, like every layer of, and when I, when I write the, the song, it's, um, it's, it's to do with my grandfather, but every layer of his person that I kind of peeled back, if I'd only known that, that, that would have actually been enough. And as a child, I didn't really know any of them. You know, oh, actually, I knew one, you know, the lovely grandfather who, who I was very close with um, and was just like this, you know, warm grandfatherly presence without any of the, you know, attendant trauma that, that you would expect someone of his experience to, to kind of um, exude. Mm. Yes. I, I mean, it's fascinating how you manage this interplay between fact and fiction through the book. I mean, it's it's very overt in some cases because you put in, you know, copies of the letter and that passage you read, but also, you know, images and, and visuals, their real names, their real illusions, yeah. um, and real things that happen that you were able to find. But, of course, there's also the story that I guess you had to piece together in, in as fiction. Yes. But that interplay is, is really fascinating to me and... Um, you know, I, 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 I just had it like, yeah. look, it, it actually, it was pretty organic how that happened though, because like I, firstly, I, I didn't really set out to write a book at all. So I, that, that was the starting point. Um, I just wanted to find out the story about my grandfather. So I was just keeping notes of, of my search. And then um, when, when nothing sort of came of it, uh, we were moving into a new house and like we were waiting for some renovations, but we were uh, in. Uh, so I, I was just like, we just had this empty, unlivable house and I just sat and I, for, for, I think for like three weeks, I, wrote, I sat down just writing my search and that, you know, it was 60,000 words of which I ended up cutting about 50,000 of them, but you know, that's a whole other story. Um, and uh, I just, uh, I realized that I hadn't, like I didn't really have a story. There weren't records there. So I just started kind of, I suppose, fiddling around with <coughs> like one of the stories that I knew that I've been told that, you know, was that, you know, my grandfather born into this rabbinic dynasty in the foothills of the Carpathian mountains in what's now the Ukraine. Um, so I thought, you know, maybe it's, it'd be interesting to just have a go at writing what it would be like for a kid like that who then wanted to run away from what was supposedly his birthright 
um, to seek a, a secular education in Prague, which is what he did. Um, and so I, I wrote it and I wrote that, I wrote that as the story, which is the prologue, but I actually wrote it as a standalone story just for myself. Um, and I quite liked it. <laughs> and I didn't think a great deal more about it. Um, and then, um, that was a, a I entered that story into the eight shot story competition way back in like 2011 and, um, and it won. And then I'm just like, okay, hold on. There's, there is actually something more to this idea of imagining them as, as characters and trying to recreate their stories using a lot of the kind of, um, I don't know, literary devices that I like, um, <coughs> from books I read, particularly, um, particularly from the kind of Czech literary canon, um, which is what I was brought up on. Uh, and so, yeah, and also a lot of the kind of like old Yiddish stuff and, 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 and you know, old, old kind of Jewish mythology. Um, so I kind of found that was a really – and I started then thinking about my great-grandmother because by this point I, that trip with, with, with Ludwig had already happened uh, where, I, where he showed me the letters. So I started thinking maybe I'll, I'll, I'll have a go at thinking about their experience, her experience as well. So I started writing that as well as fiction. And then I just <coughs> – I was writing about all the stuff that happened before the war because I actually had a reasonable amount of information about that. And then, you know, the record started disappearing, uh, drying up. But when I was like a reasonable um, way into it, records started appearing. I got an email from this 90-something-year-old guy in England who it turns out had been my grandfather's student in Prague during the war. And um, he had the class photo that he sent me, and he, uh, he, yeah, and so he, he started telling me all these stories about life in the occupation and stuff to do with my grandfather during the occupation, and also just life in Theresien stuff because he'd been there as well. Um, and then you know, the Jewish Museum of Prague, who I'd visited numerous times trying to find things to no avail, suddenly were coming. They were digitizing their records, and suddenly my grandfather's name started popping up in all these records they were they were finding. Uh, so they were sending that through to me. And so suddenly I had both. And I wanted to, like, write about the experience of kind of essentially a <coughs> excuse me, a hopeless a hopeless search that suddenly begins to bear fruit when you've all but given up. But also I really found that um, all of the all of my family who are writing about in the fictional sketches were really coming alive. Um, and and so I and also <coughs> really. I, I'm a, I read almost exclusively fiction. I love fiction. And so that's my, that's kind of my way of understanding the world. So I was actually understanding it better that way anyway. So, so I just it kind of organically grew into this hybrid and what really sealed the deal for me in the way the book took shape was I was in a bookstore in London and I just stumbled across this book called Trieste by, by Dasha Drindic. It's a Croatian writer. Um, and she wrote, and, and so Trieste is this incredible work of documentary fiction um, about the experience of the Italian uh, Jews during the Holocaust. And Dasha wasn't Jewish. Um, uh, she was incredible, uh, just just an incredible mind. Uh, uh, and this book is the, the best, you know, the best Holocaust novel of the past twenty years by a long stretch. And and but it showed me that 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 you know. Fact and fiction actually work in a complementary way, and can 
and can be used kind of overtly um, in, in, in a kind of work of literature. And so that, that kind of opened my mind to, to, to that sort of form. And, and, and I found that was like the perfect template to, for my story to fit into. And so um, she actually became my mentor um, and was very, very helpful throughout the writing of the book. Um, but yeah, like I just, I, I, I'm really glad, particularly at a time where, where, you know, where, where Holocaust is, is, the Holocaust is kind of moving out from living memory. The survivors are, at least the survivors with adult memories of it, um, are all but gone. You know, in 10 years time, there's unlikely to be any. Um, so yeah, so, so I, I just think that, you know, it is really important to keep, you know, a strong, uh, hold and focus on the factual, the historical, the evidence-based, um, irrespective of where you're going with your fictional side of it. So, uh, like, I, 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 I saw an importance in both of them. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that, that is definitely something that it, it's pretty obvious you adhere to. But I guess having the fictional element does give you the leeway as well to bring in and this is not really fiction, it's, but it's, it, you know, it's the mysticism, it's the magic realism, um, the, the whole yeah. notion, the motif of dirt, for example, the golem. Well, uh, yeah, so what happened with that was when I, when I, the, the idea of the book of dirt, and I don't mean the book, I mean literally the book of dirt that, is, that occurs in the book, mm. uh, that came to me at the very beginning. When I first read the article about my grandfather and the Museum of the Extinct Race, I, I sat there and I thought, now, why wouldn't he have talked about it? Maybe he found something that was like an, incredible, um, an, an incredibly important thing that was then lost. And then what could that be? And this idea of this you know, hollowed out book that contained what might have been the heart of the golem, which is the, uh, you know, the clay... Uh, humanoid creature created, uh, you know, from the muddy banks of the uh, the Tava River in in in, in uh, what's now Czech Republic, and uh, you know, and and with life breathed into it through holy words and incantations. Um, so from the and, it's, and you know, the is apparently from like the 16th century. Um, so the idea that that that, that he had um, found the rabbi who created its prayer book. Um, hollowed out with, with this clump of dirt that might have been the golem's heart. I, I, I just love that idea because I grew up with the story of the golem. It's a very, you know, um, Czech Jews are pretty obsessed with the golem story and it's, you know, part of the, the Czech Jewish mythology. Um, and I love that that fit in there. And then I kind of, and, and I actually came up with the title, The Book of Dirt, before I'd written a single word of The Book of Dirt. Um, it, like I find it funny that, that a book that I gave a working title to before I started writing to writing it ended up still being called that. Um, well, it's but, perfect though, really, isn't it? I mean, you you really yeah, yeah, I mean, you did well with that title. The, <laughs> yeah, 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 I, I lucked in early because I mean, dirt functions as a metaphor throughout the book. I mean, yeah, there is the literary the, the literal the literal book of dirt that's in it, but also the idea of you know. Um, Dirt in terms of just the the uh, that which covers our our uh, you know covers truth or cover, covers uh, the ability to see. Uh, like I thought, and there's a line in there which which is kind of one of my favourite lines in the book, um, where the woman at one of the museums you know says to me, "You've got to be careful when you exhume 
someone you love because you wipe away the dirt and you're not likely to find, you know, you may not find um, a familiar face. Mm. Um, so I, I like that idea of dirt as something which kind of obscures. Um, also just in the literal sense, the filth of, of life in, in the camps um, because I, I, I think a, I was very, I really had this, uh, I really wanted to um, convey what everyday life was like in the camp. Because I think that's something that, that doesn't get done much in, in literature. I think you end up with these kind of uh, idealised stories uh, often, which uh, where the everyday life in the camp is only a function of, of you know, the, the, the greater narrative of the, the whatever story is being told. Whereas, you know, I think the idea of giving agency to, to, to people who were just in this horrific situation but still trying to just live um, was really important. Um, and then there's – I also kind of like the idea of, like, dirt as gossip. Yes, and also dishing because, up the dirt. <laughs> yes, and, and, and also dirt as um, kind of the, the thought that, that what I was doing was collecting all of these bits of stories about my grandparents and I was um, compiling them, so I was kind of building the, the figure um, from that dirt and I was giving it life with words. And so that was – like for me, the perfect the golem was the perfect metaphor for what I was actually doing, mm-hmm. and I kind of I often think that, that that when I was when I was writing the book, I had created these golems of my grandparents who would come back to life essentially and were keeping me company, hanging around in my studio while I wrote. And uh, it wasn't until I finished that they kind of just returned to the the dust once the word was finished. Oh, that's wonderful, really. Um, look, amazingly, we, we've kind of run out of time. I feel like we could definitely um, dish the dirt for another hour. But um, <laughs> as you yourself have written, it's, uh, it's going to be a hard act to follow this one. Um, uh. is, is there something that's filling the gaping hole in your life left by not obsessing over the book, book of dirt, to use your own uh, words? Uh, yeah, uh, my daughter. Uh, of course. <laughs> but she, she's actually she started approaching now, so I, I've actually started writing again. Um, so she, oh, sorry, she uh, so I, I'm working on kind of a short uh, book, which is kind of well, this will be a surprise to absolutely no one. It's a fable, um, and it's uh, you know hopefully I'll that'll be uh, not too far off. But um, the other one, the other thing is uh, I've got another big project, which is a which is a similar in uh, form to the Book of Dirt, but completely different in uh, in substance. Uh, so it'll be another documentary fiction work, which will take quite a few years of research and what have you. So don't expect to see that anytime soon. But I'm also still doing a lot of like, because the, 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 the Book of Dirt was published in America um, last year, like pretty much a year after it was published in Australia. And it's gone, um, you know, it's gone pretty well over there. And so I'm, I'm actually traveling back and forth there a bit. So I'm actually still doing quite a lot of uh, promo work, I suppose, for the Book of Dirt, but in America. And it's very strange because I'm, I'm kind of going back and, talking about it as if it's just been published again. Mm, <laughs> so you're doing now. So yeah. And Groundhog Day. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, but in a good way, I guess. In, a good, oh, no, in the best way. And it's interesting because I think in the second time round, because I've had the time to think about it and I, I, I think I – really, I understand the book a lot better than I did, I think, at, at, at the beginning. Um, uh, I, I think that I've got probably more and – better things to say about it than I did the first time around. 
Well, you've done a lot of picking off of the dirt, haven't you? Sorry. Couldn't yes. resist. <laughs> um, uh, but, but little time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess the audience, every time you, you address an audience, particularly an audience in another country, it's almost as if, you know, there's a different um, – in that relationship between the book and the reader, there's a whole different set of meanings that come out. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I yeah, there's always a few of the same question. But it's always something new as well. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And, and like, I, I, I'm always amazed. You know, you'll be in the middle of, of nowhere in America, and, uh, and you know, someone will just come out with like the most incredible question that you've never even given thought to, or whatever. And you're just like, you know, it's still cool that 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 someone's made me think like quite, you know, deeply or you know about about my book that I thought I had well and truly exhausted every angle on. Yeah, wonderful. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today in the midst of, you. you know, everything that's going on. Um, and listeners, you can definitely find out more about Bram at his website, Bram Presser, P-R-E-S-S-E-R.com. Um, thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. much.